I'm glad you're here this morning. I once said I would try to keep my commentary in direct proportion to those present to hear it. And so, <laughs> but I don't think I will. We'll have, go ahead and have a long sermon anyway. Um, <laughs> And I, you. This morning we are going to talk about, we're going to finish up some thoughts on uh, the covenant with Abraham and connect that to the New Testament. And the reason we're going to start there is because it leads us quite naturally into uh, the next covenant that we're going to begin talking about today. And I don't know how far we'll get in in our study of uh, the covenant with Moses or sometimes called the covenant with the Israelites, sometimes it's called the Sinai covenant, uh, but they're all the same thing. This is where they're out in the wilderness, and they make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. So we're going to talk about that, but first we're going to finish up just a couple thoughts on the covenant with Abraham, because I want to be sure that we understand that is the Abraham, uh, the Abrahamic covenant that God instituted, that that is still a valid covenant, that that is still God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. That covenant has not gone away. It just leads quite naturally into the next covenant, and I'll explain why when we get there. But if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to look, or you can turn to Exodus chapter 19, which is where we're going to be starting when we talk about the, the next covenant. But while you're doing that, let me share with you a couple of places where we see the, the New Testament making commentary on uh, the Old Testament and how it, it plays itself out in uh, the New Testament era. If you, we look in Luke chapter 1, verse 54 and 55, this is uh, Mary in the Magnificat of Mary. She says, He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. And again, the Abrahamic covenant is sometimes referred to as when God spoke to their fathers. And the reason they they use the plural that way instead of just saying Abraham is because the covenant itself was restated to Jacob and Isaac. And so those are the, the founding fathers of uh, of the uh, the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when they say our fathers, those are the three patriarchs of the faith that, she, that she's talking about. He has given help to Israel, a servant, remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. But then she specifically says to Abraham and his offspring forever. So the New Testament's making commentary on the Old Testament when it talks about the Abrahamic covenant. Again, in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 69 and following, it says, and this is Zacharias after he has, uh, after John the Baptist has been born and Zacharias gets his voice back. I don't know if you remember the story that he's not allowed to speak uh, (laughs) during the whole pregnancy. And so there was peace in the household for uh, nine months in any event. It says that... uh, And and as soon as he speaks, he begins to prophesy about his newborn son. But he's talking about uh, God, and he says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And we'll get to the Davidic covenant in a couple of weeks. Um, But he says, as he spoke by by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Again, they're talking about this covenant with Abraham, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Then if we turn over to Acts chapter uh, 3, verse 24 to 26, Acts chapter 3, we will see again a reference to this covenant uh, of Abraham as it's played out in history in the New Testament. And this is Peter talking, says, And likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So over and over we see the New Testament. There are a number of other passages where they reference the Abrahamic covenant, and there's just a few. But we can see that the Abrahamic covenant was brought to complete fruition and finally completely fulfilled when Christ came because God made to Abraham, or if you remember correctly, six promises. In addition to the land, he he said, I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. Um, and he says, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. And then he says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we get to a point in history, by the time we get to the end of Genesis, where God has fulfilled all but two of those promises. And uh, Well, actually, all, the, all but one of those promises, but he also has not yet given him the land. And so there are two things outstanding in the covenant that Abraham has made with God that are yet to be done. And we get to the place where they are about to be done, and God's going to begin to bring to fruition the complete covenant with Abraham. And the reason God establishes a new covenant with these folks is because, uh, number one, his covenant with Abraham is being fulfilled. It's not that it's invalid, it's just completed, at least um, except for the one promise that all the families of the earth would be blessed. But that's going to take some time, as you know. So... He comes to the place where he's taken the people out of Egypt, and now it is historically the moment when Israel becomes more than a loose conglomeration of families. All the way through Genesis, it is really about one family. It's about Abraham's family. And so he makes this covenant with Abraham as sort of a new Adam, and now he is going to bring to fruition all that, he, all that Adam and Eve couldn't do and all that Noah couldn't do. You recall how those ended? Adam and Eve sinned, and he, he just wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They couldn't handle it, so they sinned, got kicked out of the garden. Uh, the temptation, by the way, on, on that one was that uh, you know they would be like God. The oldest lie in the book, and I think Satan's most favorite lie, and the reason I think he likes it so much and to tell people uh, this lie is that, first of all, it's the one that he told himself in a third of the angelic host that I could be like God. He got himself kicked out of heaven and uh, condemned, and so he likes to tell that lie and pass it along to bring others down with him. The other reason I think he likes it so much is because it's just so effective, People want to believe somehow that we are going to ascend to more than we are. And people go beyond the idea that, that in the final day we will be conformed to the image of Christ and our restoration will be complete in Him. We will still not be like God. He is one. He is singular. 
He is austere. He is holy. He is perfect in all his aspects. You and I are not, and we will never be that kind of God. We will not be God with a big G because there is only one. But it's so compelling because people want, I think, to be more than they are. They want to be better, most people. We recognize there's something within us that says there are things we ought not to do, and yet we do them. And there are things within us say this is what we ought to be doing, and yet we don't. And, and we recognize that. So we want to be better. And so, you know, when uh, Satan came and tempted her with the same lie that he had told himself, she falls for it. So God starts over. You recall how that one ended in, in all, only evil all the time. So he sent the flood, started with Noah. And then you recall how that ended in a hubris and an arrogance that said we can what? build a tower to the heavens and the imagery there is simply this that humanity came to the point that we thought we were like God so there's the same old lie once again people thought we didn't need God they could they could build a tower and ascend to the heavens in other words they could be gods and so God said well enough of that and so he dispersed them and uh, confused their languages so that came to naught now then God begins his covenant with Abraham, and inst instead of saying to Adam, go and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and instead of saying to Noah, go and be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, he says, I will multiply you. I will make you great. I will give you descendants. I will make you a great nation, and through you, I will bless the entire world. So, you know, it's, it's the difference between God promising to do something and asking humans to try to do something. Because the fact is, throughout all these covenants, the, the human, human partner in the covenant has proven to be very unfaithful. We're just not good at covenanting. And so God's long-suffering and grace is demonstrated over and over again with Abraham because he said he's going to do this, and then Abraham goes and does some very unseemly things. And yet God is faithful to his promise. So... By the end of Genesis, we have many, many, many descendants. So he's, he's fulfilled that promise. He told Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens, which is metaphoric for so many you can't count. And so by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we see that has been fulfilled. God has kept that promise. He will give him descendants uh, innumerable. And of course, they find themselves in bondage in Egypt. And then that's where we come to the, the book of Exodus. But why is it that God needs another covenant? Why didn't he just continue? And in a way, it is a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's, as I said, it's still yet to be completely fulfilled. But why, did, why does he need yet another one? And there, there's a good reason for that. Because one of the promises that God made to Abraham was, I will make of you a great nation. Okay? A loose conglomeration of families does not make a nation. When they're in Egypt, they are not a nation. They are not a race, a recognized race of people. They have a common heritage. They have a common tradition. They share presumably a common language, but they are by no means a nation. And even back in the 12th century to the 15th century B.C., depending on where you date the Exodus, there was sort of an understanding of what a nation is. A nation was a people that had a unified experience, that had a unifying language, that had a unified culture, that had a unified agreement on how they would govern themselves, they had a unified law, and they had some land. Now, the Jewish people didn't have 
much of that. They had a common, an common ancestry and a common history, but that was about it. They did not share the same culture that we see coming out of the Exodus. They didn't share the same faith we see coming out of the Exodus, and they certainly didn't share the same idea of who would govern them. We see all of that happen through the Exodus. So it is God in the Exodus fulfilling that promise to, uh, to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. And what uh, solidifies the Jewish people as a nation is this experience that God brings them out of Egypt. And they adopt for themselves an understanding of both religion and leadership and government. And they do it in the new covenant. So that's why God establishes yet another covenant with these people is because they are not the same people as Abraham anymore. It's not just his descendants. Now they are a nation. And God wants to covenant with the nation, with all the people. And he wants to fulfill his, his covenant with Abraham to create a nation of people. And so he brings them out of Egypt. And then we get to Exodus chapter 19. We see the details laid out before us. Now... Some of you might be aware that the entire covenant in detail runs from chapter 19 all the way through chapter 24. Okay. So we are not, for the sake of time this morning, going to read the entire uh, covenant. We have read most of it um, one time or another. I know I did a, a sermon series on the Ten Commandments one time, so I know we spent some time here because uh, chapter 20 is where you have the Ten Commandments. Um, and then chapter 21 to 23 are sundry laws and sort of application of the Ten Commandments. This is what it looks like kind of thing. And then in chapter 24, they have a ratification ceremony where they adopt officially uh, the covenant with God, agreeing to all the things between chapter 19 and 23. So uh, read that sometime at your, at your leisure. God is very specific in chapters 21 to 23, uh, sometimes called the judgments. Or, or the law, and he's very specific about what you should do if you borrow somebody's oxen and it's killed under your care and when you would have to pay restitution and when you wouldn't, and if you dig a hole and somebody fall, falls in it, then what you have to do. So there, there's some very specific laws that lays it out, and the funny thing is, it's not funny, but the interesting thing to me is if you ever take the time, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so, if you haven't taken the time to read your United States Constitution, it lays out the laws in a general sense, but then it also authorizes uh, certain, certain groups of people to enact other laws that are necessary. And so uh, this, this covenant we see, we see with God in the five chapters, 19 through 24, it's very similar to that. They're laying out how they're going to be governed. So they're agreeing on a government, and when they ratify it, they become a nation. Then God leads them into the promised land some 40 years later, but we'll get to that. So, we see in chapter 19, they've come out of Egypt, they're ready for uh, the, the final promise, or, or the, a couple of promises to be fulfilled to Abraham, that, that he would be a great nation and that he would give them land. And so, it says in chapter 19, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Raphidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. 
And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I brought uh, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love the fact that God said, hey, I brought you to myself. He didn't say, I brought you out of the land, land of Egypt to take you into the land of Canaan. I didn't bring you out of Egypt to take you to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, although that did happen, and both those things happened. He doesn't say that. He says, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you to myself. And it should take our minds to where the New Testament says that God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world unto himself. And so he brings his own possession, his own people uh, to himself. He says, now then, if you will indeed be, obey my voice and keep my cov covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses went up to see God, and God makes uh, the initial covenantal promise. If you will keep my commands, you will be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. That sounds almost con uh, contradictory when he says you'll be uh, my own people, sort of among the, the nations, because all the earth belongs to me. You think, and we have to be sure we don't somehow uh, substitute the word in our mind when he says, uh, among all the people, it doesn't mean out from or in contrast to all the people. He is just saying, you will be my own possession. Well, really, everybody's my possession because the whole world belongs to me. But you are my special treasure, and I have a job for you. And he says, I want you to be a kingdom, a nation of priests, a holy nation. Now, that, that is not necessarily two distinct or different things because the office is the same in the sense that the priests were holy and their job was to bring people into a relationship with God. And so God says, I want you to be a whole nation, a holy nation set apart, sanctified for one purpose, and that is to be a priesthood. And the purpose of the priesthood is to bring people to me. So he's telling them that they will be his, and they will be his priests to the world. I don't know about you, but have you ever uh, um, just not wanted to do what God wanted you to do? And I don't mean just like, well, I'm trying, Lord, or, you know, and I mess up because we all mess up. But, I mean, you ever just like thought, no, I, I really don't want to do that? Yeah. Um, I don't, if you have, you're not, you're not alone. I can tell you that for a fact. Uh, you know, you're, you're in fairly good company, actually. Look at Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Um, you look at uh, Paul. He didn't want to accept the gospel. He'd rather persecute people. And then Jesus strikes him blind, and he goes to a certain person's house. And then he goes to, uh, is it Simon he goes to and says, I want you to go, I want you to go visit Paul. Hey, the, the, the person that's throwing all the Christians in, in prison, I don't think so. That's not a good idea. I'm not going there voluntarily. I know what he'll do. And so if you ever feel this, this sort of uh, halting, um, balking we get about doing what God wants us to do, it's because he is conforming us to his will, and our will is not necessarily uh, what his is or what it ought to be. Well, the same was true, it seems, for the nation of Israel. 
Because he told them, I want you to be a holy nation, a priesthood, because through you, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes, uh, through you, my plan is to bring the whole world to myself. Through you, I'm going to reconcile the whole world and thus fulfilling and completing the promise to Abraham that through him, the whole world might be blessed. And as a nation, this is what I want your nation to be about. You are to be a priesthood. And yet by the time we get to Christ, they're not interested in being a priesthood anymore. They're not interested in bringing nations into right standing with Yahweh. They're interested in setting up a kingdom. What they want is a Messiah to come, throw off the rope of Roman oppression, and rule the world because now they have their own agenda. It's no longer we're going to serve the world like the priests serves the congregation. We're not, we're not going to serve the world, and our endeavor is not going to be bringing them into relationship with God. It's going to be to dominate and rule. We want our own kingdom on earth now. And so they just got to the place where they no longer really wanted to do what God had called them to do. And he establishes this covenant very early on, right as they're being formed as a nation. And it should be clear to them that his purpose and his intent has always been global. Yet they lose sight of that. Because by the time you get to Jesus in his day, they had a courtyard where the, gentle, the Gentiles could enter at the temple, but there was a small wall that separated a certain point where Gentiles were not allowed to come. And instead of bringing the world to God, they're trying to keep the rest of the world out because he is our God and we are his people, as though they are the only of his people. And yet the psalmist makes it clear, rejoice and praise the Lord, all you nations, for he is the God of all peoples. The shortest psalm in, uh, in the whole uh, Psalter, I believe, is uh, 117. It's only two verses long. That's essentially what it says. Rejoice, all you nations. Because global is the idea that God had in mind for the very beginning. Even in the, the first two covenants, what's he say? Fill the earth, the whole earth. He tells Noah the same thing. Fill the whole earth. And he tells Abraham, through you all the nations of the world, all the families of the world will be blessed. So God's initial idea was never that he would have just one peoples, but that he would have all peoples from all tribes, all tongues, all nations. That's what he's working towards. Um, and Israel became sort of a bottleneck in that, in that uh, process. And so we see the ultimate fulfillment in Christ as he comes to reconcile the world to himself. But he tells the people, the, I will be your God if you indeed obey my voice, you keep my covenant, my own possession among the peoples of the earth, for the earth is all mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. He's talking to Moses. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people, people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. 
Now, notice all this back and forth that Moses is doing. He's, he's presumably climbing a mountain here. I mean, Mount Sinai is not a rocky mountain like we might think of a mountain, but it's, it's not an e- easy walk, I, I don't suspect. And in fact, you've seen what they believe to be Mount Sinai even today. You could pick any little mountain in, in that part of the country, and it's not, it's not easy to traverse. So he's up the mountain in like chapter or verse 3. He's down the mountain in verse 8. Then he's up the mountain in 14, back down in chapter verse 17, he's up the mountain in verse 20, and then he's back down the mountain in verse 25. So there's up and down, up, poor. You know, Moses has got to be thinking, can we just do this once? Well, it's, it's a picture of the fact that we need a mediator. We need somebody that communicates with God for us because in just a few minutes, God is going to say, look, don't let the people come close to the mountain because anybody that comes close to my presence will die. And so uh, the people are, are kept at arm's length so that they need a mediator. And this Moses going up and down the mountain is so supposed to put in our minds the idea that somebody has to mediate for us. And, of course, the ultimate mediator is the Christ. So Moses came and told the elders, and the people said, We will do everything the Lord has spoken. And Moses went back up the mountain and told uh, the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people uh, to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. They're preparing to meet God. And sometimes I wonder if we couldn't, uh, we couldn't learn something from that process. Uh, most of us, if we were honest, particularly, um, I think it's, it's easier when you're in the congregation and not, not the pastor, hopefully. Um, but for many of us, we start thinking about Sunday, uh, well, Sunday morning, or maybe Saturday night. So oh, tomorrow's Sunday. I got to get in bed early because I got to get up. And and then when we figure out what time we need to get up, it's it's you know how long will it take to get to church? You know, uh, what time's church start? Back it up for the time for the drive. How long will it take me to you know shower and get ready? Back it up that much. That I'm gonna set my alarm. But there is no consecration. There is no washing of garments. And that was symbolic of them bringing their best to God. They brought their hearts ready to hear from God. So many times I'm convinced people uh, come to a church service and say, well, I just didn't get anything out of that. Well, maybe the, the ground wasn't prepared for what God was bringing You know, we need to consecrate ourselves and start uh, opening ourselves up and preparing our hearts for what God might want to tell us or teach us or show us. So the people come on the third day. I just love 16 and following. Look at the picture of God that's painted here. So it came about 
on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Can you imagine being in a service like that? I mean, that would be, uh, that would be amazing. It would be awe-inspiring, but apparently it was also terrifying. Um, people sometimes talk about, oh, I just, you know, want the presence of the Lord. I just want God. And we do. We, we have God's presence through the Holy Spirit. But sometimes His presence is a convicting fire. Sometimes His presence ought to cause us to tremble just a little bit because He is that much other than ourselves. And so the people gather around the mountain, and it says the mountain is quaking violently. Now, I've never been in an earthquake, but I think it would be a, sort of an intimidating thing to be standing next to a mountain that is quaking the way this one is, and it's all because God has descended onto the mountain. Now, when God descends onto the mountain, Verse 20 and 21 just are just interesting. And the Lord came down on the Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and says, Go down. <laughs> I just got here. <laughs> go, Moses goes up, and then the Lord says, Moses, go down. Warn the people lest they break through, the, break through to the Lord and gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said, The people cannot come up to the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn us, saying, Set bounds on the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come upon the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, it looks like, if we're not careful in our reading, it looks like that Moses is reminding God of something. Like God said, and the priests that come near, they should consecrate themselves so I don't break forth on them. I, I like that phrase. You do not want uh, a holy God breaking forth on you. Trust me. So anyway, he says, lest I break forth on them. And then it looks like Moses says, well, wait a minute, Lord. You said nobody can come. You said set a boundary. And the, and the Lord's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I did. And then he changes. What, what uh, this little dialogue between Moses and God is really saying is that um, he's talking about the priest coming near, not up the mountain with him. Um, and God says, set the boundaries. And then Moses is saying, done that. It's all been established. We, we have done what you've, you've asked us to do. And so he's just, he's, you know, repeating what God has asked him to do and saying that he, is, he has done exactly that. And so he goes back down to the mountain to talk to the people again. And so there's this interchange where God shows up to speak to the people. And seven times in chapter 19, the word descend is used. And, and it's a picture. Part, part of the time it's Moses, but uh, the rest of the time it's God descending. When you get to chapter 24, 
The word descend is not in that chapter. It's ascend. Because it is that though the people are now looking up to God. God has come down, and now the people are looking up. And so seven times the word ascend is used in chapter 24. And so this chapter 19, 24 sort of bookend the covenant. It's the cover of the book of the covenant, if you will. And so between you have uh, chapter 20, which is uh, the Ten Commandments, actually originally just called the Ten Words of God. It was never called the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. It was By the time the New Testament comes, uh, the phrase Ten Commandments is being used, but um, early, or at least in the Old Testament, it was just called the Ten Words of God. And then, so you had the Ten Words, and then chapter 20, 21, or 21, 21, 2, and 23, I can't even count today, 21, 22, and 23, are the sundry laws and applications, and then 24 is the ratification. Now, when God ratifies, or the people ratify their agreement with God, it says, and we're going over to chapter 24 because, like I said, we've, uh, I've, I've preached through, through most of the material in, in between before. We get to chapter 24, and this is where they're going to ratify the covenant. Then he said to Moses, come up, ascend to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. And there's the word ascend again. So people are ascending in, in this chapter. Now Moses recounted all the words of the Lord, of all the ordinances, and the people answered with one voice, and they said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. They arose early in the morning, built an altar, and uh, he, he makes some sacrifices. But my point of that is, you get down to verse 7, he says, Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to them. So God has spoken these words to the people. They've said, yes, we'll do all that. Moses says, okay, I'm going to codify it. I'm going to put it in writing. And so then he reads the book to the people, and then they agree that they will do all that God has said. And so they ratify this sort of uh, agreement with God by which they will not only worship him, but they will also govern themselves. And thus they became a great nation. Now, chapter 25 and the rest of Exodus is given to the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the office of the priesthood, and how it is they're, they're supposed to worship God. That takes us all the way through the uh, chapter, I guess it's 25 to chapter 40 of Exodus. So they build the tabernacle in the wilderness where God dwells, and he outlines for them all the, uh, all the things that we see in the tabernacle, like the lampstand and the table for the showbread and the altar for the sacrifices. And, of course, the ever-famous uh, Ark of the Covenant, which is, is also housed in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So we see that um, God has laid these laws out in the covenant, and then he moves on to how, if you're going to be my people, or since you have become my people, this is how you will worship me. So, what does this have to do with the gospel? Well, everything. Because God has just given them the law. By the time we get to the New Testament, uh, they've had the law for presumably 
Uh, depends on when you date it, 1,200 to 1,400 or more years. They have been worshiping God this way. And now here comes sort of a young upstart saying, no, 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 we're going we're to do it different. We don't need the tabernacle or the temple anymore. And so you can see how difficult that must have been for them to, to look back on 1,400 years of tradition and say, yeah, well, we, we can change that. But God brings them to the place and he gives them the law. And we think, well, did the law fail? Did the law fail? And the answer to that is a resounding no. The Bible says that the word of the Lord never returns unto him void. In other words, it never fails to achieve the purpose for which it was given. And that is very true of the law. So what, what's the purpose of the law? Paul tells us just point blank. He answers the question. So he even says, some would say then, what's the point of the law? And then he just tells you the law was a teacher. It was a pedagogue. It was sort of a tutor to come alongside us and show us our desperate need of a Savior. You don't know how, you don't see how far short you fall until you see the standard. And the law lays it out for them, and they realize they cannot do it. The law was never intended to save anybody, it was only intended to drive people to the Savior who was. And so we see this new covenant God makes with his people at Mount Sinai, and it is still um, being completed in the sense that God is still redeeming his people. He is still calling the world unto himself. And we'll talk more about that as, as we talk about some of the other covenants, in the, particularly the one, the new covenant. So, in any event, God is good. God is sovereign. God is holy. And he has established for all times his purposes. And that is to redeem the world. Now, we can be... As God asked the children of Israel to be a nation, if you will, of priests and a holy nation bringing people the good news of Christ. Or we can do as Israel came to do and be more concerned with our own little kingdoms and our own agenda and all that we have and want for ourselves. I think God's plan's better. I'm going to go out on a limb and just... Say God's plans better. Let's pray.